0: Well, if you guys would, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, and we will be starting off in verse 1 of Luke chapter 6 this week. And once you are there in your Bibles, whether you're powering it up or turning to it, um, if you could please stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 6, or sorry, Luke chapter 6, starting in verse (laughs) 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the grain, rubbing them between their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save life or to destroy it? After looking around at them and all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. You guys have now had the privilege of hearing uh, the inerrant, uh, the infallible, and the inspired word of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is unchanging, Uh, it is living, and it is active. And one of the reasons that we all stand together for the reading of God's word and we uh, say together thanks be to God for his word is because we are thankful for his word. These are not just things that we say. These are not just uh, habits that we repeat because other people have done them in the past. If we would not have the revelation of God through his word to us, we would not know how to live our lives. We would have no guiding tools for this life. And so when we, we stand and we remember with reverence the word of God, we remember that this is the lifeblood of the people of God. To be saturated and obedient followers of God is to be saturated in his word and to be following it. So that is why week after week, we stand and we uh, read the word of God together. uh, And also why when I conclude the reading and I say, this is the word of the Lord, uh, the congregation says, thanks be to God. That is not just a statement uh, of a platitude. That is us authentically thanking the Lord for giving his word to us. I think it's important to underscore that because we do that uh, time and time again. So it's important, I think, from time to time to revisit why we do the things that we do. As we get into uh, this week, uh, we'll see that you have uh, about 11 verses to cover um, and you might uh, be surprised to know that we're gonna probably take two weeks to get through these texts. Uh, uh, For many of you, that's not a surprise and you're laughing because you probably guessed so. But um, as we get into the text, I just wanna recap really quick uh, the building crescendo of Luke's gospel up until this point. We've been in Luke for some time now, going back to the early part of this year. And when we get into the deeper chapters, I think it's easy for us to get bogged down and lose the bigger picture, especially when we're going slowly. And we wanna always be in Luke's gospel in context. And in this chapter, we're gonna have really the last conflict before there's kind of a major pause in Luke's gospel. So as we're approaching this final conflict, I would like to recap for you the building narrative in Luke's gospel uh, through the early chapters. Remember, Luke is building his gospel to uh, Theophilus, his reader, and he introduces it in chapter one and verse four. And he says, Theophilus, I'm writing these things to you so that you may have certainty about the things which you have heard and which you have been taught. And as, we're gonna, as I'm gonna go ahead and recap this, you can flip there with me. I'm just gonna be referencing verses as we bounce along through the chapters. That's uh, chapter one, verse four. And then as he begins to build his gospel telling uh, Theophilus how he might have certainty, one of the first things he does Is he introduces Theophilus to a character uh, called Zechariah, who's a priest. And Zechariah is visited by an angel. And in verse 16, the angel tells Zechariah that he's gonna have a son. And he says, and that son will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And this creates a, a moment of change, it creates a moment of expectation. And as he continues to build this, the very first person, who Zechariah introduces us to, even before he's born in his womb, he introduces us to Jesus. You see him leaping in his mother's womb in uh, chapter uh, 1, verse 39, 40, and 41. Uh, Elizabeth hears the word of Mary, who's approaching, and Zechariah leaps in his mother's womb, identifying Jesus. And then uh, as as we get introduced to Jesus more and more, uh, in verse 32 of chapter 1, when the angel shows up to Mary and introduces her uh, to the son who she is to bear, he introduces Jesus as a character who is going to be great. He's going to be called the son of the most high and he will have the throne of David. We see that in chapter one, verse 32. So he's gonna be the son of the most high God and he's gonna hold the throne of David which is a specific understanding of a prophecy that happens in 2 Samuel chapter 7 about the throne of David being within the lineage of where the Messiah will come from. And then in verse 33 of that same chapter, you'll see that he says the kingdom will have no end. He will rule and reign forever and ever. All of these prophecies are beginning to build. Luke is building a case for who we're to expect Jesus to be. And remember, Jesus isn't even born yet. Jesus is still being prophesied to come. And all of that occurs really in the first chapter. And then we get into verse uh, 35 of that chapter. And the angel's going to continue to build the case by saying, and this son will be called holy, the son of God, the son of God. And he's going to continue to build that case because in verse 30, as I said, in verse 41, John leaps in his mother's womb. And then in verse 76, right towards the end of the chapter, Zechariah prophesying about the son who he's going to have, he says... And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High God, for you will go before the Lord and prepare his ways. Remember, John uh, the Baptist is going to go before God, preparing the way of the Lord, and Zechariah prophesied that back in chapter 1. And you'll remember when we get to chapter 3, when we meet John the Baptist, that he, in fact, does go to prepare the way of the Lord. That's his whole mission in life. But then in chapter 2, we get one of the most distinct announcements about who this Christ is going to be, because in verse 11, we're, we're told by the angels of heaven that this child is going to be the Savior, he's going to be the Christ, and he's going to be the Lord. And that's the only time in Scripture that we see all three of those terms occur so close together. He's going to be the Savior, he's going to be the Christ, and he's going to be the Lord. And this is referring to Jesus at the night that he is born to Mary. And after that amazing proclamation you meet a man named Simeon. And Simeon is a key character because one of the things he prophesies about the Christ is that the Christ is going to be the Savior of Israel. He says in verse 30 of chapter 2, that my eyes have seen your salvation, referring to the salvation of God. And then he makes a specific prophecy about what the life of Jesus is to be like. He says in verse 34, that this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And then he says later in verse 35, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And if you remember, just a few weeks ago, we've been studying in Jesus's earthly ministry how that prophecy continually becomes more and more real. And you're going to see that again today in the text when we get there. The prophecy of Jesus uh, revealing really the thoughts of the hearts of the people. That is what he does. He is a divisive character in scripture. There's no neutral responses to Jesus. And then in verse uh, 40 of chapter 2, You're going to see that Jesus is told to have favor with God. The favor of God is upon him. And not only that, but in verse 52, we see that he grows in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. So not only is God's favor upon him, but he grows in his favor with God as well. So it's a two-way street that he has a relationship with the Father. And as the case continues to build, we meet John the Baptist. And remember, John the Baptist, the one prophesied to make way Make, uh, go ahead of the Lord and uh, make straight his paths, the first thing we see John the Baptist preaching about is that it's not him, he's not, the, he's not the big deal. He's preaching and he has all these people coming to him and he says, no, 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 no. In verse 16 of chapter three, he says, the one who is mightier than me is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And of course, John the Baptist is not talking about anyone else besides Jesus, because when Jesus comes, John the Baptist baptizes him And the Spirit of the Lord descends upon Jesus and God speaks out of heaven and said, this is my beloved Son. And that is building the case for us as readers to understand who is this Jesus to be like. Now God is speaking with a unique lens as to the favor that he has with the Christ. And then you'll see we get that long genealogy at the end of Luke chapter 3, and you'll remember that that genealogy isn't something for us to skip over in our reading plans. That genealogy is there for a reason. It's building a case And in the genealogy, there's two names that I want to highlight. One is that Jesus is traced in the middle of that genealogy in verse 31 to be the son of David. And then at the end of the genealogy, you'll see he's traced all the way back, not to Abraham, but all the way back to God. Not only is he the son of David, he's also the son of God, which is something that was prophesied earlier in chapter 1. And as that genealogy begins to build and we see now Jesus in his adult ministry, he's uh, starting off as an adult is the first time we meet him in chapter 4. And we see that in chapter 4, the very first thing that happens is Satan identifies Jesus as the Son of God. He says, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Not questioning his divinity, questioning whether he will turn this stone into bread. He's seeking to entice Jesus. And Satan is the first, uh, first person we see, in, at least in his adult life, besides God the Father, identify him as the Son of God and then you'll see uh, later in chapter 4 verse 18 how jesus preaches about himself and he opens up the scroll of isaiah and he says the spirit of the lord is upon me because the lord has anointed me and so we've met jesus and he's not remember luke's not coming out and telling us exactly who jesus is he's building this case over time and the very first thing jesus preaches the very first sermon we hear from him is he says the lord is upon me and he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor to proclaim liberty to the captives the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, bringing to mind what Simeon prophesies about how Jesus is the salvation of God, and Jesus comes forward to bring forth the year of the Lord's favor. And then in verse 34 and in verse 41, the demons get in on the action in chapter 4. The demons Don't deny Jesus' divinity. In fact, they identify without hesitation him as both being the Holy One of God and the Son of God. And this is before any human profession of faith that we see in Luke's Gospel. So now we have Satan and the demons all testifying with the heavenly host that this is the Son of God. And that's uh, just in chapter 4 in very short order, verses 34 and verse 41. And the first thing we see in that same section is that Jesus is portrayed to us as having authority over those very same demons. They have to profess him as Lord because he has power and authority and dominion over them. And then as we get into the later part of this gospel, closer to where we're at today, in chapter 5, you see he meets Peter. And when Peter sees who Jesus is, he falls on his face and says, I am unworthy, I am a sinful man, depart from me. Feeling the holiness of God that is present, before him. And Peter follows after Jesus when Jesus invites him to. And then the very next thing that we see is Jesus is revealing himself to have authority over disease. He heals uh, a leper, then he heals a paralytic, and he doesn't stop at authority over disease. He actually elevates it and he says he has authority to forgive sins. Remember, he says that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. That's in verse uh, 24 of chapter 5. And then... We see not only that, but he actually proclaims his ministry, his mission, in chapter 5, verse 31, to be one where he's a physician who's coming to heal the sick. His mission is to heal sick people, to redeem sinners to himself. And then in last week's account, we saw that Jesus revealed himself to be the bridegroom of the bride, who's present now with his people, who's bringing about a new covenant that the old covenant won't be able to contain. And that brings us to where we're at today in Luke's gospel, and this is mounting for us a conflict. The evidence is building and you either have to accept or deny the evidence, but you can't end up in a neutral spot, at least not this deep in the gospel. That might have been fine in chapter one when it's still prophecy, but now as a real adult man going about and claiming to do things that you either have to say he did that or he's crazy for having claimed to have done that. But you can't leave yourself in some neutral position still examining the evidence. And the Pharisees begin to realize that because as you saw at the end of our reading today, the response of the Pharisees is one that shouldn't surprise us at this point. It says they're filled with fury discussing what they might do to Jesus. He knows, and they know, that there is no neutrality in their dynamic together. Their relationship is one that must have a, a culmination, a result. And their result, unfortunately for them, as we'll see, and is not a surprise to us at this point, is largely negative. But as we work through this text this week, Uh, This week, we're going to go through it, and we're going to follow the argument of Jesus in these two conflicts. So we're going to follow the different statements that Jesus says and the different questions that are asked to him. And we're just going to trace the logic of what is Jesus arguing for? What are the Pharisees contesting about? And we're going to trace that through. And then when we get to next week, we're going to, with more close detail, examine this question of the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath? Is it still binding on Christians today? Is the fourth commandment one we just ignore? I felt that it was a little too much to try to cram that all together into one week, Uh, so we're going to do that next week. So this week, we're just going to look at this passage and examine the argument from Jesus. And if you look with me, first and foremost, the very first statement that we see made is this question from the Pharisees. They say, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And this is the very first thing we have to address. They say, why are you doing what is not lawful? And that's a question of legality. What is lawful or what is right or what is good to do on the Sabbath? Now, you'll notice that that comes out of a context, out of a situation we've been introduced to. Luke tells us in chapter, uh, sorry, verse 1 of chapter 6, that it is on a Sabbath day that these events take place. And then on this Sabbath day, the disciples are walking through the grain field with Jesus. And as they're walking through, they're plucking wheat out. And they're taking the wheat off the kernels and they're rubbing them between their hands and they're getting some nourishment for themselves, remembering that they don't have a home. They are traveling people. They don't have very many provisions. And so then the Pharisees, almost out of nowhere, pop out and they're there, ready to accuse Jesus and his disciples. And I always find that interesting that they're just there whenever something, something happens. And then this question comes up. Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And then we have to examine, well, what are they referring to when they say it's not lawful? Because remember, we're thousands of years removed from this context. Are they referring to the taking of the grain? Is that something that's illegal to do in Israel? Well, if you look at the Old Covenant, actually in Deuteronomy, we see some provisions where someone who is a sojourner in the land or someone who's of lower socioeconomic status is able to walk through the grain fields and take. They're not allowed to go harvest the grain from other people, but they are allowed to take a small portion for their own provision. If you remember the historical book of Ruth, you see that uh, Ruth has this same provision made for her by Boaz. Boaz actually goes above and beyond and tells his men to actually th- uh, cut thresholds and, and bushels and just leave them there for her to take because he is being a good steward of the generosity that he has commanded as an Israelite. And we see in that text that there is this precedent in the law for people to be able to take from grain fields, even if it's not their grain field. The limitation is they can't harvest. It says you can't go in with a sickle and make a harvest out of a grain field that's not yours. So that's not the bone that the Pharisees are picking right now. They're going beyond what the law says, and they're actually zoning in on this question of a violation of the Sabbath day. Now, to understand that, remember I said the Sabbath is the fourth commandment that we get in the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, we're given all Ten Commandments. And in that section, right, right after... Uh, You know, make no uh, false carved images. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And then afterwards, you know, we kind of forget a lot of them and then, you know, you get to do not murder. But the Sabbath is in there and it's almost the one that we try to cross out after all the rest. It's the one that, you know, we put the Sabbath as command number four, but we try to pretend like it's not there, even though we, we really understand that the rest of them are still binding on Christians today. And the question here is, is Jesus and are his disciples in violation of this Sabbath precedent? In what way would they be in violation of the Sabbath? Well, to understand that, you have to know that this is not anywhere in Scripture that the Pharisees are pulling from. Because all we have on the Sabbath is, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You shall do no work, nor shall any sojourners in your land do any work. The Sabbath day is a day of rest for you and all your household. And so we're not told, though, exactly what the definition of work is on the Sabbath. And during the time of the last 400 years before we meet Jesus in Israel, the Pharisees have set about to make it their job to define very explicitly and with much detail what does and what does not count as work on the Sabbath. In fact, they come up with a total of 39 tenants. They call it the 40 take one. And they write this whole document and this is now their legal code of what you can and what you cannot do on the Sabbath day. And for us, that might be a strange thing, but you remember... They believe they can be saved by keeping the law. And so it would be very wise for them to spell out whether you are or are not keeping the law because that really moves the needle for you as an Israelite. And so they spell out 39 ways in which you could potentially violate the Sabbath so that they publish this and now they can hold people accountable. If you do this thing, you're working. Or if you do that thing, this counts as work. But if you do this, it doesn't quite count as work and you're still obeying the Sabbath. Now, what are the disciples in violation of on that list? Well, the first thing they're in violation of is the fact that they pluck some heads of grain. That's count, that counts as harvesting. You'll notice that in the law, it doesn't count as harvesting when they're taking it for their own provision, but the Pharisees decide to count it as harvesting as it relates to work on the Sabbath. It's one of the tenets that they violate. They are technically harvesting grain, which counts as work, because the Israelites are farmers. And so they can't work on the Sabbath, so they can't harvest on the Sabbath, and the disciples have decided to go ahead and violate one of the 39 tenants of what counts as work. The second thing that they do is they remove the grain from the sheave that it's in. That is counted, not as harvesting, but as reaping. Because if you reap, it's when you're sifting something out from the fruit and the rest of the husk and you're taking away the fruit from the husk. And so now you're reaping. So you violated now two of the Sabbath tenants, according to the Pharisees. And then they're not in violation of just those two. They're also in violation of threshing, which is because they rub the grain between their hands. They're sifting out the good, edible parts of the grain from the non-edible parts. Now they're threshing. They're sifting between two different parts of the grain. And you're not, allowed to do, you're not allowed to do that on the Sabbath. It counts as work. And they're guilty of grinding because this corn is not cooked or this wheat is not cooked. And so when they chew it between their teeth, it counts as grinding. They're processing it before they eat it. Therefore, guilty of four tenants on the Sabbath. And we have to ask the question, How did the Pharisees get to this point where they have 39 rules that you need to obey in order to be safe and not violating the Sabbath? Jesus will accuse the Pharisees many times in his ministry of obeying the traditions and the rules of man rather than the traditions and the laws of God. And the Pharisees here are clearly stepping into that line. And we can recognize that from where we stand because this is not our struggle. It's a lot easier to see someone's problem when it's not your problem. And the Pharisees' problem is they think they can work their way to salvation, and so they've come up with 39 rules. And that's good because it clearly spells out when someone is and isn't in violation, and so they can very easily call out sin that's in their midst. And they're going here, and they're going to call out Jesus and his disciples for violating their rules. And you'll notice how Jesus responds to them. He doesn't respond by trying to rebuttal their tradition. Here's what he says, verse 3. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? That's a sarcastic question. Of course they've read it. They've dedicated the entire, most of the book to memory, and they quote it. He says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence. And Jesus isn't going to leave that up to interpretation. He's going to go further and say, which, by the way, is not lawful for any but the priests and also gave it to those who were with him. So not only does David eat, but he also makes other people eat of the bread of the presence. And you've read this, right? So what are we to do with that account that we have there in 1 Samuel 21? What are we supposed to do with that? Well, if you look at that account, Jesus is adding some interpretive light onto that text because it's a story. In 1 Samuel 21, we get this story, this account, and we're not told some of those other details. We're not told that it was unlawful for him to have ate of the bread of the presence. All we're told is that David asks for the bread of the presence, The priest gives it to him. He agrees. He says, as long as the men have kept themselves holy, kept themselves from women, they are allowed to. And David says they have. And so he takes the bread of the presence and gives it to them. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, have you not heard about this one story that's in our book that we share? What do you do with that? And how does that square away with those 39 different rules that you have for work on the Sabbath? Well, Jesus is doing is very smart. We've actually seen him do this before in chapter 4 where he uh, is engaging in the pe- with the people in the synagogue and he says what about Elijah when he goes to the Samaritan? What about Elisha and how he goes not to Israel but to a woman from the land of Sidon? What about those two people? What about the historical precedent that's set in the text? A prophet is not welcome in his hometown. That's what he says there. And here he does the same thing. He's going to set a historical precedent for what is and what isn't allowed according to the Sabbath. And he does this by invoking David, which is a second smart decision because the Pharisees love David. In fact, if you're a Jew, you love David. David is the king of kings in Israel. They refer to David. They love David. They call themselves sons of David. David is their guy. And so not only are they going to take some random character from history, Jesus is going to take David and say, your rules would mean that David was guilty at this point. And they don't pretend that David is a perfect person but they don't think that he sinned in this instance. And so they're going to have to now decide whether Jesus is right or whether they have to say David was wrong with what he did. And not only David, but also a priest would be guilty at this point as well, because a priest is the one who offers the bread to David. And so Jesus is saying, what about this? He's going to put them in a conundrum. And then the third reason it's wise that he brings up this particular text is because what David did is worse than whatever Jesus and the disciples are doing. And the reason is, is because it's actually specifically stated in the law that you are not allowed to eat the bread of the presence unless you're a Levite. And David is not a Levite, and neither are any of his men. And so the violation that David commits at that point in history would be worse than whatever the Pharisees think Jesus and disciples are guilty of, because they know that they've added rules and they're interpreting what work means. But also in the law, it clearly states that if you're not a Levite, You can't eat the bread of the presence, which both David and his men do. So if Jesus can get them to uh, understand this historical event, then he and his disciples are safeguarded from their accusations because what he's doing is far less of a violation of the law than what David does. So now the question is, well, how do we understand that David text? What precedent is Jesus putting forth in that text? He says, have you not read, meaning they should have understood what was going on, And the precedent is this, that when mercy is the choice, it's the choice between mercy and following the ceremonial law, you violate the law to be obedient to mercy. David and his men are famished. They're on the run at this point in time in the text. And when Jesus teaches this story, he's saying, isn't it obvious that what the Levite did was a good thing? Because he gives David and his men food, even if that food that's ceremonially reserved for the priests it's better to do that and to not let David and his men die than it is to rigidly keep the ceremonial law. He's not saying disregard the ceremonial law. What he is saying is there is a law that is weightier. Another way that Jesus will say this is in Matthew 23, 23. He says, O you Pharisees and scribes, woe to you, for you tithe dill and mint, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. You should have tithed dill and mint, but... You shouldn't have done it at the expense of mercy and justice you shouldn't have done it at the expense of those things jesus interpreting the character and the conduct of the pharisees saying that they keep the law but only the parts they like to keep and they neglect the parts of the law that they don't like to keep and so he's putting this in front of them and with historical accuracy laying his case before them and this is obvious for us as we're reading again from, from our vantage point, because this is not our struggle. In our culture, we do not typically struggle with legalistic ritual up until this degree. In fact, we really are off the hook in the other direction. Well, we'll get to that. The, the third thing that you're going to see in this text is not only that he, he raises that question, but there's a third statement, and this is Jesus interpreting that previous story that he's given, and he interprets it by saying this in verse 5. He says, The Son of Man... Is Lord of the Sabbath. And the last time Jesus says the Son of Man, he says the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. You remember at that time we talked about how that's from a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man is given authority and given a dominion and given a kingdom. And Jesus interprets that Son of Man figure, who's a messianic figure, as himself. He says, I am the Son of Man and I have authority to forgive sins. And then here he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus is fleshing out for them what it means to be part of the Son of Man. Now, if you were to examine the text of Scripture and you were to look uh, far and wide in the Gospels and in the whole New Testament, there's many ways to refer to Jesus as God. You can call him the Son of God. You can call him Christ. You can call him the Messiah. You could call him the Son of Man. You can call him Lord or Kyrios. But the favorite way that Jesus has to refer to himself is number one position with no competition, Son of Man. In fact, if you were to look at Luke's gospel, every reference to the Son of Man, 27 of them, are all from the lips of Jesus himself. He refers to himself as the Son of Man more than anyone else refers to him as the Son of Man. It's his favorite way to discuss his divinity. And in this text, he says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And many people will debate what exactly that means, why he's interpreting this David text in that way. And one of the interpretations is like this. David, when he violates the commandment, the ceremonial law, the reason the Levite is okay with doing it is not so much because it's a merciful act, but because of who David is. David, remember, is the anointed king. David has a special place with God's heart. And David sits in this place of favor with the Lord. And so when the Levite meets David, and he knows this about David... He has a choice to obey the ceremonial law or to give the Lord's anointed bread so that he can go and fulfill his commission to be king over Israel. And the Levite acts in accordance with his convictions and he gives David the bread, David and his men, and that sustains David to eventually later down the line he can fulfill his commission. And Jesus is saying, You know, I'm the Son of Man. If David, the king, not even the ultimate king, could have that kind of exemption from the law, how much more so? the Son of Man, the Messiah who is before you. Is it not right for the Messiah and for his followers to eat grain from a grain field? Is that not a fair and just thing to have happened in the law? Wouldn't that be permitted under the guidance of the ceremonial law? Because after all, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man gets to call balls and strikes on what is and what isn't okay on the Sabbath. To say you're Lord of the Sabbath implies you have authority over it. You have authority to interpret what it means and how it applies. And this is a profound statement because the Sabbath isn't even instituted back in Exodus 20. The Sabbath is instituted in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, is where we see the Sabbath practiced, first not by men, but by God himself. And so for Jesus to say he is Lord of the Sabbath, he's Lord of that rest day, is for him to say something paramount to the fact that he was around at the time when the authority was given even to God. When God instituted the Sabbath is when Jesus was Lord of the Sabbath. You can't be Lord of something you didn't help partake and create. That authority can't be passed on to anyone else. So Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath is a profound statement. In fact, if you were to look at this uh, sentence in the Greek language, that word Lord, which is in the middle of our sentence in English, is actually put out in the very front of the sentence in Greek. And that's a weird thing that they'll do, but they do it to bold underline and italicize the word Lord. They do it, it's called the emphatic position. And this doesn't happen all the time, but when it does happen, the author is trying to tell you something about that word. This is not just Lord, as in any other time we see the word Lord, he's saying Lord of the Sabbath is the son of man. He has an emphatic location as a ruler over the Sabbath. That is what Luke is telling us by his grammatical and sentence structure in this text. And that's not something we should just gloss over because that's the very heart of how Jesus interprets this text. He says, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath, therefore he and his disciples are exempt from the accusation of the Pharisees. And ultimately this comes down to a question of authority. The question of authority is a modern question, but it's also an ancient question. And it goes something like this, who gets the final say on what the law does and does not say? Who gets the final say? That's a question of authority. Does tradition interpret the law of God more so than God himself does? If so, the Pharisees are right because they have the tradition. They have 400 years of tradition interpreting the Sabbath codes. So if they have the authority to interpret it, they're right and Jesus is wrong and he must repent for his sin. But in fact, he is not wrong because as he says himself, he's Lord of the Sabbath. But we have different problems in our day. We have the tradition problem, certainly. We are far too allegiant to our tradition than we ought to be. And for many people, that's more of a struggle than others. But tradition isn't the only bar of interpretive authority that we give ourselves to. The other one might be some teacher that is your favorite teacher. Whether it be some uh, pastor or some person you hear teaching the scripture. Whoever, whatever their interpretation is, whatever you believe before, that goes. That is assigning a level of authority to what they say. That is assigning a level of interpretive authority to what they say. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, don't follow Paul, don't follow Apollos, don't follow Cephas, follow Christ. You're not allegiant to any one teacher, you're allegiant to Christ. He is Lord. And so you have to examine for yourself the truth of these claims with the Holy Spirit guiding you. But you can't just take whatever some person says and apply that as gospel truth as if it is because no sermon ever in the history of the world has been written that's been infallible. The Bible, however, is infallible. It cannot fail at any point in time. Your favorite teachers, my favorite teachers, they fail. They fail more more than they would like to admit, and actually many of the best ones will admit how often they fail. But Jesus never claims to have failed, and he never did fail. And so that's another level of authority that we can give someone who's not God. Here's another level of authority, yourself. If you give final interpretive authority to yourself above what the text says, above what reason says, above what other people say, you're assigning a level of interpretive authority to yourself. Here's how that would look. You read a text of scripture, it says something that you don't like or you don't agree with, and you say, ah, it must not mean that. Because that would call into question my understanding of it. Or that would call into question the kind of sin that I like to practice. Or that would call into question how I like to behave. And then you're assigning interpretive authority over the text of Scripture, not to Scripture itself, not to a teacher, not to tradition. You're assigning it to yourself. And this is probably the most common one that we face today. Because even the best of us live in a postmodern world where truth is anybody's. And you can even make your own. And then the authority becomes your own. And this, isn't, this doesn't manifest as, well, Scripture isn't inerrant. This manifests as, well, Scripture is inerrant, but it doesn't mean what you, says it, what you say it means. Well, I have my own interpretation, you have yours. We'll just live in our own little world. And that is assigning a certain level of interpretive authority to one person only, which is the person who says it. And people do this to give themselves space from the plain teaching of Scripture, because Scripture is plainly understood. And they give, it, give themselves space, not for any reason in the text, but primarily because it typically assaults a sin or something that they do that's in violation of God's law. And if you ever find yourself reading a text of scripture and going, it it definitely doesn't mean that, but your your reasoning comes from somewhere within as opposed to what the scripture plainly says, you're realizing you're in conflict with the scripture. That's what the Pharisees bump into. Jesus says the, the law in this case, the historical evidence proves that your code of the Sabbath is in plain violation of what David did. And now they're in a bind because if he's right, if the scripture is true, then they do have to go do away with their code. They have to say their code isn't actually infallible, but they won't do that. You'll notice they don't respond. Ultimately, the question of authority comes down to Jesus. He has interpretive authority. He has, as he says, ultimate authority. The son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. He has final authority. And he reveals himself plainly in his scriptures but we have to keep moving for the sake of time. And now I want you to look with me at the second story, and then we're going to have a second three statements that we see. The second story starts with this first statement, and it's really in the middle of that paragraph. It's in verse 8. Jesus commands the man to come and stand here. And we've read that account, but I just want to recap for you the setting. This is another Sabbath, a different one. He goes to the synagogue and he's teaching. Now, why the people let Jesus continue to teach is beyond me. But apparently the Pharisees don't have enough power to keep him out of the synagogues, so he continues to go around teaching wherever he will be had. And they can't stay away from him. They have to hear him and hear him teach. And so they're in this synagogue with him as well. And in this synagogue where Jesus is teaching, there's a man with a withered hand. Now, what that means is his hand is likely paralyzed, either from some kind of injury or some kind of childhood deformity. But nevertheless, there's this man there, and we're told the other characters present are the Pharisees. It says in verse 7, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. Notice why they watch him. It says, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. They're looking for a reason to accuse him. Notice what's not said in the text though. This goes back to something that happened earlier in Luke's gospel. Remember when Jesus preaches from Isaiah and he says, I am the person this prophecy speaks about? And they say, show us a sign. Do a miracle for us. We'll believe you then. And you remember what Jesus says? He says, no, I know your heart. I'm not going to do that. And they try to throw him off a cliff because he won't do a miracle. And in this instance, they've decided the miracle isn't a good enough test of authority because Jesus can do it. You'll notice in the text it says whether he would heal on the Sabbath. Not whether he can heal. That's not the question anymore. Remember, he's raised up a paralytic in front of them. He's healed all kinds of people at this point. He's casting out demons. The question is not, can he anymore? They've now tried to raise the bar of what they've said is acceptable truth, going right into what Jesus said about them, which is no kind of evidence would be sufficient to change their mind. They're seeing whether he would heal, not so that they can believe him if he heals, so they they can find a reason to accuse him. They're trying to catch him in such a light as to spin the story and to control what is being said about him. And so they can pass on false testimony about who Jesus is. See whether he would heal so that they can call him out. So they can falsely accuse him. The question is not can he heal, but will he heal? And if he heals, can they spin the story to make him look bad to everybody else? That's the question. And it's interesting because when, if you ever evangelize to somebody, or you talk to them and you, you share Christ with them, one of the tests, one of the good ways to test whether they they are willing to be receptive to the truth or not is to ask them, well, what what would God need to do to reveal himself to you? What would would that level of sufficient revelation be for you to believe? I was in a conversation like that a few weeks ago and the person said to me, you know what? If God came down to earth, I would believe. God came down to earth, I would believe. And I said, that's what the whole New Testament's about. God coming down to earth so that you can believe. And they said, well, not like that. Because the reality is they don't care what God does, they're not going to believe. Because there's other parts of God that they just don't quite like. There's other parts of God that they decide they think they know better than God about. And they've elevated themselves to a position of authority where they judge God, and therefore there's nothing he could do to make himself plain to them, except for change their heart. And that's what a gospel profession is all about. This is not a reasoning game. This is not a game of reason. We know that because the Pharisees have plainly evident reason in front of them. There's something else preventing them from believing. They're looking for a reason to accuse him. That's their motivation. But he knew their thoughts. He knew their thoughts. And that recalls something we read when we started this uh, time together this morning that uh, Simeon prophesies about Jesus saying that He is actually going to divide israel he's going to make the hearts the truth in their hearts revealed to them that's in luke 2 35 he's going to reveal the truth that's in their hearts he knows their thoughts and so he's seeing the scene he's seeing the pharisees waiting and watching and lying in wait for him and he says in the probably in the middle of his sermon he notices this scene going on he stops and he asks the man to come forward he says come stand here that brings to mind what he does with the paralytic right he brings the paralytic the paralytic's right in front of him he says come stand here and then with the man in front of him everyone can see what's wrong with him his hands withered he turns to them and he says this is the second statement in that text is it lawful on the sabbath to do good or to do harm to save a life or to destroy a life and you'll notice he has to look at all of them and there's no response from them they don't say anything He says, is it lawful to do good or to do harm? That harkens back to their code of 39 different rules. And they have rules about whether you can or can't heal someone on the Sabbath. One of the rules about whether you can or can't heal someone has to do with how urgent the need is. If the person is dying or a woman is giving birth, then you can provide medical attention. But if it can wait for tomorrow, wait for tomorrow. So to work is allowed in certain circumstances which they decide what the threshold is. And in other cases, it's not allowed. And Jesus would not have been allowed to heal according to their code on this moment, because this is not an urgent matter. This man's hand has been withered probably for some time, and it will be withered again tomorrow where Jesus could possibly heal him. But Jesus is going to push the issue. He's gonna press it forward. He turns to them and he says, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? That's the question. And that question is far more pointed than you might initially realize. Because remember, he knows their hearts. He knows their thoughts. And while he is about to heal this man on the Sabbath, at the very same time, they're plotting ways to take his life or to destroy it. He says, is it lawful to do good, which is what he's about to do, or to do harm, which is what they're thinking in their hearts. And he says, or to save a life, which he's about to do, he's about to restore this man's life, or to destroy it, which is what they're plotting to do to him. And you'll see in the conclusion of this text, that's where they come. He says, what's lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, it should be abundantly obvious to everyone, even us 2,000 years removed, the right answer to this is yes, lawful to do good. Yes, lawful to save life. No, you should not do harm on the Sabbath. No, you should not destroy life on the Sabbath. That should be obvious to anyone reading. But the Pharisees are so clouded in their minds that they can't see the plain truth that's right in front of them. They can't see it. Notice again how they don't respond. They have no response, but they're going to hold this tight in their heart. This harkens back to something that was read a few weeks ago during the meditation in Isaiah 58, where God, through Isaiah, says, Is is not this the fast that I choose? And then he goes on to list different parameters for what counts as a fast unto God and what doesn't. And one of the accusations he has for the people of Israel in that text is that the fast that God chooses is marked not by strict adherence to not eating food, but by showing mercy to the poor among you by showing humility and by giving generously to people who don't have. That's the fast that God says he chooses. It's a a fast of heart posture. He's saying, he's not saying that's what fasting is. He's saying if you're going to fast, if you're going to follow the law, follow the weighty matters of the law. Follow the things that have to do with mercy and have to do with justice and have to do with living rightly before God. Jesus will say in another account when he's faced with this same set of events, this is in Matthew's gospel, He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That comes out of something that David says. He says, Lord, you don't require sacrifices. You want mercy. You want a contrite spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. David gets it. David understands the law. These Pharisees who love David completely miss it because they've created all these codes of legality around it. And that plain response with no words said, Jesus is going to then go forth and do something that should not surprise us at this point. He says in verse 10, stretch out your hand. He says that to a man who is unable to stretch out his hand. And coming from anyone besides Jesus, that would be a very cruel statement. That would be a very strange thing to say. It's similar to when Jesus tells the paralytic to get up. If you don't have the power to heal this person, calling them to get up is an extremely painful thing to say. Calling this man to stretch out his hand is something extremely painful to say. But Jesus doesn't just command him to do something that he can't do. He also puts it within the man to do it. And this is a perfect picture of what it looks like when Christ calls us to faith. He calls us to respond in faith and then also gives us the ability to respond. He doesn't do that when we're still in our withered state. If you hear the call of God, he also, as he says, puts his spirit within us so that we can rightly respond to that call. As he does with this man, he says, stretch out your hand. And in the time between when the man's hand was withered and he gave the command, somewhere in between there, he gives the ability for this man's hand to actually go back and stretch out. He gives him the ability to react to his call. And that is something that is marked in this passage. You can't miss it. He says, the hand, no surprise to us, is restored. The hand is restored instantaneously. The man's able to stretch out his hand, and then this man completely disappears from the scene, and the camera goes back onto the Pharisees, and we see their response to this miracle that Jesus just did. Remember, they're asking for miracles earlier. They don't get them, and they're mad about that. Now they get a miracle. They're mad about that. They say in verse 11, but they were rejoicing? When the paralytic gets up, he's rejoicing. What are the Pharisees doing? They were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. They've decided that Jesus, whatever evidence he's going to put forth, is not enough for their standard. If Jesus wanted to convince the Pharisees, he would have to become a Pharisee. He would have to believe and profess all the things that they believe and profess but they're not going to pivot to him and that's fundamentally what rebellion looks like. It looks like saying, I know God doesn't know if God wants me to follow him, he needs to become like I am and then I'll follow him. But that's not a God worth worshiping. God fundamentally says the opposite. He says, if you want to follow me, you have to pivot and follow me. God is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is from everlasting to everlasting, the king over all creation. He's not going to change. And as the Psalms say that we are men. We are like grass. We wither and fade. The strength of our years is by reason of strength, 70, 80. If you're pushing it with good medicine, maybe 100. But we change. Because in that span of our life, we change so many times. In fact, our life is marked by different phases of development. But God's Whole existence is not marked by development. In fact, it is marked by an absence of development. It's marked by a presence of consistency. And that marks his love. He says he has steadfast love to all who are in covenant with him. Because his love is unchanging. He is from everlasting to everlasting, the God over all creation. He doesn't change. And this tells us something about Jesus' ministry on earth. Remember, Simeon prophesied this. He says, he will be appointed for the rising and the falling of many in Israel. God is a divisive God. And when Jesus shows up in the flesh, God incarnate to the Pharisees, the very God that they claim to worship is missed by them. Not because he's not plainly evident, but because he doesn't look like what they wanted him to look like. And they decide they're going to keep their tradition and they're going to forgo God. And in doing so, they reveal who they are. The religious are not able to fool God there's a clear distinction between where they stand and where Jesus stands. And by the way, you can't fool God either. If you live your life pretending to obey God, fooling everyone else, fooling yourself, but when God shows up and commands obedience in your life and you refuse, that is evidence of the fact of where you stand. Remember, we say, according to James, salvation is by faith, but faith that is salvific is never on its own. It never happens without a manifestation of fruit because the fruit is what you look at and you say, yeah, that bears itself to be true. The faith has been verified, it's been confirmed. And there are so many today who would say, I follow God, I follow Jesus. But you just can't see it. And they fooled themselves and they might think they have everyone else fooled. But God certainly is not fooled by that. And God through Jesus, shows who the Pharisees are. And by learning from this text, we can learn where we're supposed to be at. Because if you wanna fall or identify with a camp of person here, I can tell you it shouldn't be the Pharisees. Now you're given the ability as a reader in Luke's gospel, because remember we reviewed those texts to see who is Jesus making the case for who he is. How is he building himself? How is he billing him out to be? He's not billing himself out to be someone who's gonna make your life better. He's not billing himself out to be someone who's going to make you happier or more wealthy. In fact, all the people who he calls to follow him become markedly worse off afterwards, at least materially speaking. What he does bill himself to be, though, is the Lord God of the universe. And if he is that, it doesn't matter what he does for you. It matters who you are in relationship to him. Because Jesus doesn't come to make people happy. He doesn't come to make your life sunshine and rainbows. What Jesus does come for, however, is to call sinners to repentance. Mm -hmm. According to his own word, to take sick people and make them healthy again. And that takes an eternity. That takes our entire lives. But Jesus can do that through one lifetime, through one death, for one moment, for all time. Mm -hmm. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the truth that is in every one of us. Lord, how you plainly reveal your truth to us as people. Lord, I pray that as your truth goes forth and your truth is proclaimed, that it would also go forth with a love in everyone's heart for it. Lord, we know that although the truth is plain, our response to the truth varies widely. And Lord, you don't change, but our view of you certainly can change, depending on whether we're in rebellion. Or whether we're being called out of that into life. Lord, you reveal yourself to be a God who is unwavering and unmoving. And I pray most of all that you would give us the kind of heart that wants to move and be in line with you. Give us the kind of heart that seeks to be in relationship with you no matter the cost. Because, Lord, we know that it does cost. Lord, I thank you that you have rescued a great number of us, that you have called us to be your children. You've put your spirit within us to cause us to live a new life and to desire your truth and desire to live in obedience to you. And Lord, I pray that as we continue in our time of worship, that you would allow us to rejoice in that reality, that we can rejoice in the fact that you are a God who forgives, that you are a God who atones for sinners, and you are a God who restores people back into relationship with you. Lord, we thank you for the truth that is in your word. We put all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.